For June 15th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 624, Justice at the Disco. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and uh, we're never happier than when we are together. Uh, you know, just being together uh, is enough these days. <laughs> Whatever it is we're talking about, uh, we are still in a uh, we are still in a traumatized America. Um, you know, uh, hey, the the. Uh, none of the none of the tensions the deep underlying problems in our society were solved by our previous two podcasts i'm really upset about that because you know i thought we would i thought we were a, a universal beacon of love and and uh you know understanding of of what did we say once in an episode uh empathy and fellow feeling um but uh you know here we here we are uh and continuing to sort of figure out how to use our platform and what to do with our voices uh in these times if you recall <laughs> let's uh, recap uh 2 weeks ago we read you uh martin luther king jr's letter from a birmingham jail a uh, uh you know profound and resonant piece of writing that's still having actually read it out loud and then listened back to the episode uh and heard the whole thing in its entirety in our three voices i uh you know certain bits of it still um ring in my ears last week we talked about uh self-care we talked about um, how to take care for yourself, uh, how to take care of yourself so that uh, you can be, uh, you are ready and you are fueled and inspired and um, nourished to, uh, to build the better world that you would like to see. And now, uh, you know, let's turn a little bit to pop culture. Let's, uh, let's, guys, let's, let's just, it's time for us to get back to normal, don't you think? It's time, it's time to reopen the podcast. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about music on this episode, specifically uh, in this time of many, many protests around the country, many large-scale demonstrations. Um, let's talk about protest songs, protest music, and what it uh, and what it means. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by my fellow overthinkers, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt, you guys did a great job last week, by the way. Sorry oh. I couldn't join you. Uh, you know what, Pete? We, we offer unlimited parental leave. That's just one of the... <laughs> at, and Pete, unlimited parental leave at your full salary. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, just take advantage of that whenever whenever you have to have it. It's a blessing to have you in the times that you do come. And uh, Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. I'm still fighting the power here, by which I mean <laughs> usually acquiescing to it, but occasionally <laughs> objecting. In my own unique way, <laughs> we, um, yeah, we. Uh, it's interesting. Like uh, we had a, uh, uh, we all knew um, through various tangential ways uh, when we were in college, a federal judge who was on the board um, of a, a nonprofit thing that we were all involved in, and and this federal judge judge was fond of speechifying, and uh, he talked about his life growing up in Italy. Um, under uh some of it under occupation and then uh you know uh some of it uh some of it after the second world war and he uh 
he used to say, well, from time to time, my family would have to, from our like country house, we would have to go to Rome. Right. And then I, you know, I grew, I came to America, I studied, I, you know, went to law school, I became a lawyer and I became a federal judge. And now I have come to realize I am Rome. (laughs) He was was not Judge Dredd, but he did say, I am the law in in a certain way. And uh, I think that, like, to a certain extent, we all go through that transition uh, in our lives from a, 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 at a certain point, you know, when from when you are at the mercy of the entrenched power structure uh, to when you become part of an entrenched power structure, maybe not the social one, maybe one in your family or, uh, you know, or I don't know, maybe you don't. And maybe you sort of stay at the, um, at the, the mercy of the entrenched power structure. But I do, I do think that this idea of going to Rome um, or being Rome is an idea that's, that's sort of interesting when you, you know, when you consider, uh protest songs protest music generally like what wh- when you go to rome <laughs> presumably it's to to do something to tell those romans a thing or two to give them you know to give them a piece of your mind and um you know and when you are rome you you have uh, young people marching in the streets um this is maybe a simplistic uh simplistic um duality that we can can uncover a little bit but i guess i i want to start you know by asking the panel uh what do you think protest music is for and I, i'm not sandbagging with that question well matt it's music to protest things you don't like but why why that as opposed to other forms of protest as opposed to sort of direct action um you know as opposed to writing long monographs and publishing pamphlets or you know blog posts or you know uh uh you know chat books or whatever you publish why that as opposed to um you know all the various kinds none of these things none of these things are mutually exclusive so so what is it that makes protest music a useful tool in the arsenal of of the revolutionary i don't know does either of you have a perspective on <laughs> yeah. that? those I'll, are two I'll, very I'll, different questions that you just asked right but anyway sorry go ahead yeah i'll, I'll venture a quick uh try to, uh, a quick response to this uh which is that a piece of pop music song uh, music a song that's roughly about three four minutes long is a very easy entryway to create a collected shared mass experience through modern mass media you put it out there everybody listens to it everybody can plug into it and engage with it and know it without very few barriers to entry um be it you know a a single uh record back in the day to radio play to an internet stream now um it's there's no barriers there unlike you know sitting through an entire season of a television um show or sitting down to watch uh, a feature movie for two hours um that's my very small and pat explanation. Now, Pete, do you want to kind of like unpack or problematize that? <laughs> those, are the only two, those are the two things I do. Those right? are your two options, yeah. This is, this is basically how I – this is when I come back from vacation. It's like unpacking and problematizing. Those are the two things that you have to do before you just, go back to work. Just look at this <laughs> luggage. Look at this backlog of luggage that's piled up in your absence, Pete. Un, unproblematic, packed up <laughs> luggage. Well, I guess the first thing that I want to do in terms of saying this is to acknowledge 
at least, that there is a sort of subset of protest music, at least how we would consider it, right? There's a there's a little bit of a semantic uh, clarification that's worth making, which is that I think in our common discussion, the discussion among us, uh, the, the idea of kind of what is protest music versus what isn't protest music, we lean towards casting a very wide net and, and looking at, ver- at a variety of different kinds of protests and a variety of different sorts of stylistic implementations of traditions of this. And I do think that that I want to make it clear, there is a certain subset of protest music, often called protest music, that's sort of seen as sacred, right? Like, we're not saying, like, what makes we shall overcome, we shall overcome, right? Like, that's, this is not, that's not what I'm talking, we're talking about, right? We're not, at least not strictly and exclusively. It's like, okay, it has to incorporate both something like that. And then also things that are like, much more venal, Right. But but also, you know, much more kind of non-threatening, much more indulgent, where people are complaining about things that maybe are less urgent or that they're less personally related to. Uh, And and I guess complaining is maybe the wrong word, but um, it's one of those things where and I feel like I run into this a lot. I don't know if you guys run into this, that in defining and discussing terms, uh, I feel like I run into people who are less interested in discussing uh, the identifiers of a functional subset of of kind of discursive technologies, right? As in, like uh, like a protest song. You know, they, are you more interested in the fact that it sort of is employed in the purpose of a protest, that it's motivated by a cause of protest, right? Is that what for you classifies it as a protest song, or are you looking at it from the stance of like, okay, this is kind of how the song is built and how the song works, and it can be employed for a variety of purposes, right? Such as like uh, what, um, uh, you know, Lego my egos and get your hands off my lucky charms and stuff, right? Like, there's a lot of songs about protesting. Uh, tricks are for kids, right? We don't we don't know what Apple Japs are for. They they just are, right? Uh, and that even though that's kind of funny, I'm not meaning to trivialize. Right. The protests that might motivate and be associated with more serious sorts of stuff, but more point out that at least the way I see it. And I wonder if you guys see it this way, too. The function of the discourse drink, uh, it, it does diverge right from the motivating circumstances of its most hallowed examples. Right? Sure. I mean, the, the, um, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I might frame the question a little bit or frame the issue a, a little bit as like the difference between the the uh, intrinsic and the instrumental protest. Right. And that right. like and that you can get the instrumental protest can get very far away, can get very far afield <laughs> from the intrinsic protest. Um, right. Like an and. Uh, uh, you know uh the the right i'm i'm sure i don't know i'm sure that that more or more than one grounded teenager has like bellowed let my people go throughout the you know throughout the <laughs> Uh, throughout the house and like that does not it it doesn't take away it doesn't trivialize the uh, actual I mean, it, the actual civil like rights it trivialize, or, it trivialize it but its existence doesn't necessarily like retroactively uh, trivial. Yeah, inv- right. invalidate the very serious, the, the yeah. you know, the non-frivolous uses of that, yeah. uh, uh, uses of that of that particular text. So, yeah. so it's interesting that you you have these, you know, I don't know, you have these particular, you have these particular texts, and they can be, um, 
deployed, right? They can be kind of mobilized in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I guess the continuum that I would, that I would point to is the continuum from the, uh, very individual to the very collective, right? Complaint, um, that that you're sort of that uh, you know that you're uh militating against with your with your music but i i was i uh, to be fair the the leading question i was asking was was actually trying to get like mark trying to get into the the direction that that mark talked about yeah um because that at least like one anthropological root of music seems to be uh in like collective action right seems to be in like organizing shared work Um, that like, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of the rhythm, either call and response or some kind of, some kind of instruction set embedded in the, the lyric of a song coupled with the rhythm, coupled with the, you know, the, um, what we know about audiences, which is that like audience kind of biological function, like breathing and, and heart rate and things can, can sort of synchronize. Um, it, it creates, it's a way of kind of creating, uh, that sort of synchronized experience, um, that sort of synchronized experience among people and like whether, you know, uh, setting aside whether tricks are or aren't for kids and the, the many kids it's who not a protest song, but you yeah. know what? I was trying to think of, them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you I know. want my MTV, I want my MTV. Yeah. So, but so setting it all aside, what I want to say is it rhymes. Yeah. Right. Like, and it, because it rhymes, it is easier to remember. And, you know, rhyming's main purpose is mnemonic for things that are passed in media other than print. And of course, now people, it's so easy to pass things in, in text that perhaps the mnemonic function of rhyming is less important and more the notion of kind of resonant text is more important. But, but a, so a protest song might be in those cases less useful. Because it, and also uh, the sharing of song, as Mark mentioned, is a vector for sharing information uh, that is uh, difficult to fully control or dominate. I suppose is what I'm saying. Like you can sing a song, and then somebody else can remember what you sang and reproduce it easier than if you were to say give a stump speech. Right, right? and so the um, the interesting thing, yeah, the interesting thing is the way it turns an I into a we, right? Yeah, and the way that like singing, I can sort of it, it's mimetic, right? Like I can, I can kind of infect you with the meme of a song and that, like that idea, um, you know, you can, you can then go kind of spread that idea, uh, and, uh, very widely. And, and then all of a sudden it's not me demanding justice. It's, it's we demanding justice. It's, it's, you know, us standing up against, um, you know, whatever the wrong is that, that, uh, we're looking to remediate in, uh, you know, in our protest. Right, right, right. And so so in that case, okay, what are the dimensions of it? Uh, You could say, okay, it's easy to remember. It's easy to spread. Uh, It's, you know, I would say one other dimension is that you can make stylistic choices in creating protest songs that pre-identify your message with existing traditions, which is an interesting irony, right? It's a, a, a lot of it reminds me of the opening sequence of the Watchmen movie as, as much as anything where they, you know, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are a Change in plays, right? I think the Watchmen it's, movie. Yeah, absolutely. The Watchmen movie. Yeah, the Watchmen movie, which is the canonical and best form of Watchmen, right? The one everyone's talking about this week is the Watchmen movie. Uh, but uh, not, <laughs> um, not not the TV show, of course, which is expressing uh, which we need to talk about at some point on the podcast, by the way. And I don't want to get that. Uh, 
to sidetracked on that and and maybe 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 uh on another sort of occasion we could we could discuss the watchman show but but the point being that like there's this sort of uh jackass 3d-esque kind of uh tableau oriented intro to watchmen which uh, with the song the times there are changing playing right i consider the intro to jackass 3d to be iconic i don't know about you uh when everything sort of pauses and there's wreckage happening everywhere um but uh but when bob dylan is singing that song it 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 feels as you were mentioning it feels like rome it doesn't feel like going to rome it it feels like the sort of heart of moral authority and and it feels like it's grounded in tradition and establishment right like this is not a surprising shocking or uh or iconoclastic song anymore at least from my perspective if it ever was uh and i mean that what i mean that is by hooking into folk music traditions that predate it by decades, right? Or even, you know, a century or so. Uh, it, it, it participates in this sort of heavy center of gravity of the culture. Uh, I mean, one, one thing, you know, we've, we've kind of, uh, I've talked about here and there is, is different ideas of like, uh, if, if you're a protester, are you weak or are you strong is an interesting question that's posed. And I came across it when reading about some Gandhi in accordance with, you know, current events, which is like, you know, well, if you're strong, you might behave in this way. And if you're weak, you might behave in that way. And I think sometimes we don't really think that like, you know, the, the people marching in the streets, they might be a minority or may might be not a minority, right? Um, they might be the majority um, and uh, and they just might be governed by the minority, right? Like, but, but it's course, and you, it's hard to know. Uh, but what I'm saying is that, you know, if you create a protest song that's in an existing musical style or genre, you can, you kind of claim association with the cultural resonances and already self-organized groups that are associated with that genre or associate with it with a degree of kind of fondness or resonance. Or that's what you're true. You can try to do. Maybe you'll succeed. Maybe you won't. Right. Um, I mean, it's the same thing as making a monument out of marble because you want it to look Roman, even if you made it in like, you know, 2012. Um, and, and, you know, because you're hooking into a tradition, uh, you know, it's it's the old uh, add extra weight to your to your car door. So when it slams, it sounds like something made in the 60s. Uh, right, as opposed to something that's utterly disposable. Yeah, or right do what do what a lot of auto manufacturers. No, I shouldn't say a lot. What, do what I know certain automotive manufacturers yeah. do now, and pipe in the sounds of yeah. an engine revving or of a, a car door slamming or something like that. So yeah, so like so for a lot of so the, so examples right in the United States in our sort of big umbrella notion of protest music, there is protest music that's based on spiritual, which we've already mentioned. And spiritual, of course, being a old, old genre, right, with roots both in sacred music and in African musical traditions, right, uh, you know, sung in, in, in a variety of very specific sorts of situations. Um, you could create a new song that was sort of in that style, like they did for Selma, the movie, right, with Common. Sure. Yep. And, and like create a new protest song that hooks into that tradition. And it doesn't necessarily feel like you're like the the mohawked, you know, skateboarder, like parents don't just don't don't understand. Although that's also now like 40 years old. Right. So like you could also do a sort of like I have a mohawk. I have a skateboard. I'm like spray painting things and, and I'm and I'm bashing stuff. And, and it's like, well, you know, 
that associates you also with a different sort of moment and a different sort of group of people. Uh, and maybe when it was new, it meant a different thing than it does now. And, and we've sort of watched a generation of angry people uh, grow in, angry, basically angry teenagers grow into angry adults. And it's interesting to see how this sort of genre of music evolves over time to accommodate their changing places in life. So I guess that's sort of what I'm saying, right? Is like you could write a country song that's a protest song and you would expect it to resonate with people who like country music. Um, or you would expect the people who resonate with it to adopt other sorts of superficial, countrified, uh, you know, accoutrement or signifiers. Sure. Uh, and that would be per- and that would in turn go back to what Martin was saying and talk through like sort of social cohesion and how and why are you organized in this particular way and kind of reinforce those sorts of notions. Um, it's tricky though, because like, you know, have they made a great dashboard confessional style? (laughs) They have, but they're all, they're, they're complaining about things like girls not talking to you. Right. They're they're, they're really, it really is on the I end of the continuum from I to we, you know, um, there's no justice exclamation point at the disco. Um, I'm so like, I, I like that there are, there are other ways to do it. I mean, it, it as well, I sort of one thing, my, I guess my, this is because of the way I was raised. Um, my, uh, parents went to college when protesting the Vietnam war was, uh, you know, a uh, kind of a big thing in their lives. And so she uh, used to sing me country Joe and the fishes. Um, oh, what's the actual title of the song? I think it's called, I feel like I'm fixing to die rag. You know, do you guys know that one? I don't, uh, the, I don't. the chorus is one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me. I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam, and it's oh, five, yeah, six, yeah. seven. Open up the pearly gates. Oh, I ain't got time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all gonna die. And uh, it was sung at Woodstock. And the, um, uh, uh, you know that which is a weird thing to, to sing to your children. I just wanna. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I will say in passing, but that's a, I mean, that's a rag in the sense that like, it's sort of burlesquing, um, and the, the, the squeaking uh, sound, I guess my dog with his chew toy is talking about the, uh, burlesque, uh, aspect of, of this song. It's burlesquing, um, it's burlesquing the the sort of hypocritical establishment asking people go uh, you know and ordering people off to their deaths in Vietnam that that like and sort of by doing a by doing a rag right it's not importing uh, or arrogating to itself a moral authority it's actually kind of it's sort of undercutting this is this is you know set against the idea of like spiritual protest songs like you know we shall overcome or let my people go or um, you know. Uh, I mean, there's, there are amazing grace was, a was an abolitionist protest song, um, that like, uh, you know, are actually, uh, are actually kind of standing in the moral authority and kind of through like deal with the moral authority with integrity rather than, rather than with, uh, rather than kind of aimed at a kind of burlesque sort of, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting, like one of the things that that I learned about the African-American spiritual tradition was that, you know, the African musical tradition that got uh, imported to America when Africans were kidnapped and enslaved in, in the New World was um, that like these songs, you know, became 
they became sort of work songs. They became a covert uh, work songs in the sense of what I said before about like um, coordinating uh, among many people, collective work, right? They became uh, a kind of subversive resistance in the, you know, uh, though that, that may be, overstated and kind of sentimentalized in in retrospect i don't trust a lot of things i learned about that period of history in school and uh and that like those things are the ancestors of a lot of the uh a lot of the kind of spiritual tranche of of protest songs which is a kind of which is a welcome subversion right um that that is to say it it uh I don't know. It sort of re it sort of re ennobles the resistance by you know by kind of acknowledging its by acknowledging its roots. But um, you know, and another another one in the kind of the the deeply morally serious spiritual uh, mode is you know the is the Battle Hymn of the Republic during the Civil Civil War, which you know had the line. Yeah, the I mean, you may think that the lyrics are. Uh, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He was driving down the alley in a green and yellow Ford, but those are not the real lyrics <laughs> friends. Those are not the real lyrics. And the verse does not, uh, does not continue in, in, you know, various obscene ways. Um, no, uh, the, uh, as Christ died to make men holy, let men die to make us free, uh, or let us die to make men free. <laughs> A little, little, uh, little Freudian slip there. As Christ died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. Um, the kind of abolitionist message, and and you know, you you have to think. I mean, not not exactly into protest, but into war. That that was um, going through some people's heads as as they were singing uh, itself. Um, a uh using the melody of the John Brown song John Brown's body lies a moldering in in the grave but his soul's a marching on uh same same melody with glory glory hallelujah another uh John Brown an abolitionist um and that like uh that like to me I don't know I I'm sure there are previous examples but in the can I just say I love John Brown an abolitionist and just like leave it at that. <laughs> John Brown's just an abolitionist. Yeah, he's just a guy. I'm actually mostly interested in talking about him in connection with Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> if you would like to delve more deeply into he has John Brown, a great Brown. wax museum in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Uh, I mean, he's a what? I guess you could describe him as an insurgent, a sort of hardcore insurgent, uh, violent, organized. Uh, tr- true believer in abolition, right? Who, who I guess, well, he was involved in bloody Kansas, and then he also attempted to launch a slave revolt, right, by raiding the federal arsenal in West Virginia, and uh, with the intention of distributing the weapons to um, African Americans uh, in forced labor, and uh, and and leading them in a, an over- a violent overthrow of the country. Um, the song was then repurposed by the country's national army within a two or three year period <laughs> as it as it cracked down in all of these places. I mean, which is which is not to say which is not to, again to trivialize the connection between the two. But it's interesting. Um, just John Brown is just a sort of titanic sort of personality. But let me let me let me read you a little bit from from Wikipedia here. Uh, John Brown, May 9th, 1800 until December 2nd, 1859 he died, was an American abolitionist. 
So uh, I rest my case. Yes. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It's neither here nor there. Let's talk about D. Snyder. <laughs> Speaking of burlesque. No, do we want to do we want to do that, or do we want to do the uh, the more the more sacred uh, uh, and, and and profound rather than profane? protest song of uh, what's going on first yeah really depends it really depends the uh it really depends on what we uh the the arc the story that that we want to tell but there's there's uh there's never a bad there's never a bad playlist that ends with marvin Gaye. so let's uh let's go let's uh you know eat our vegetables before we before we have our what's going on wait which one's the vegetable (laughs) (laughs) well so okay so to, to clue the audience in, we have picked rather than tr- try to really broadly address all protest songs ever, we've picked several across the spectrum in order to match the appropriate level of seriousness of this podcast that, that run a bit of a gamut. And we did not put them in order when we started, but I, I think I think we have a loose order, right? Let's start with the one you wanted to talk about, Matt. Let's talk about what's going on with Marvin Gaye, right? That was the one that you wanted to to start with. Well, it was Mark's uh, it was Mark's first was suggestion Mark, for the podcast, okay. but yeah. Yeah, let's. Uh, there's no bad. There's no bad playlist that starts with Martin Gay, as I always say. Marvin there's Gay. Never, there's never a bad time to talk about Marvin Gay. There's never a bad time to talk about the amazing album, What's Going On, and its lead track here. Um, listen to it like really closely if you haven't before. Listen to the instrumental version, which we'll link to in the show notes here if you haven't before, to admire the, just the like, amazing Motown artistry of that era. This is like the real pinnacle of that sort of thing look it's just like infusion of r&d sounds you know, like it comes a long way from uh, please mr postman from just a few years ago to this which is like some pretty hard avant-garde uh jazzy stuff going on so just like as a as a musical composition if you just kind of skip past the words for a second it's it's really it's really truly tremendous um but let, let's let's talk about the substance of this so this is um from what 1971 i believe it was recorded in 1970 but released in 1971 and the album is a whole concept album you could call it a whole it's it's a protest album what's going on the lead track itself is primarily uh about the vietnam war i believe the narrative that's been ascribed to it is a veteran comes home and he sees all the civil unrest around him picket lines picket signs that sort of thing, right? And he's kind of asking what's going on. It's this, uh, you know, it's not, he knows what's going on, right? But, like, he's also asking the the broader question of what's going on, as in, like, uh, why are these terrible things happening in society? Uh, that's my synopsis synopsis of of the song here. So, like, so, Pete and Matt, like, how does it fit into this taxonomy that, and, and the concepts that we just described before? I think it's an interesting I mean I think the the uh the interesting thing is the way I mean it doesn't what is it advocating for right like what is it what is the kind of the course of action what is the corrective action that it's that it's advocating for right well, um, very succinctly don't punish me with brutality don't punish sure uh or talk to me so we can see what's going on so I mean so the interesting thing like um is that uh it's uh the the it sounds like a question the title sounds like a like an interrogative but it's actually a um you know the the object of of that sentence it's a like a relative clause uh uh that <laughs> that which is going on you know right so we can see what is that which is going uh uh that that which is going on and so like the the um the um 
the the kind of the request in the song, the kind of the advocacy is like take stock, you know, like actually see the world. Um, and I think that, I think this album also had mercy me on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's the one that immediately comes after what's going on. Yeah. And so the, the, the idea is like, uh, the idea, uh, is again like sort of take stock like the it's interesting like there there is this whole range of songs like i'm thinking of maybe uh the time sahara change in also like a hard rains are gonna fall um this maybe for what it's worth also like the idea of like stop children what's that sound like what's that sound it's the things going on you know that that like the uh the the way this song the song works is like by telling you the world is not the world is not what you think it is like either your categories are old or your categories are you know mired in assumptions that are that are not the case or that are no longer the case um and and the the number of the, it, it belongs to kind of a, a part of, of these songs or kind of a genre of this sort of song that says you know um Hey, you know, take my perspective seriously, right? Like, hey, you know, look at look at the world from from a different point of view. Kind of raise your consciousness or 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 open your eyes. And it's, you know, it's powerful that like it's not what is it's not what's going on. What what's going on as though he as though he doesn't know. He knows what's going on and he's saying confront uh, confront what's going on rather than, um, punishing me with brutality because you don't like, <laughs> uh, because you don't like the world that you see. Yeah. Another thing to add to this as well is that this is, uh, incorporating, um, uh, the, the point of view of the counterculture, right? This is, um, uh, you know, as opposed to a like, civil rights movement song. Uh, um, I mean, you could interpret it as such, right? But there is this particular line, that's pretty interesting here, right? Who are they to judge us simply because our hair is long, right? Not that our hair is curly and, 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 and puffed out in an afro, but that it's long, you know, like the invoking the long haired hippie, right? Um, that to me is like, is a very interesting lyrical choice here. And, and, and it gives this song like an, an interesting level of, um, expansiveness, I think, is the word that's coming to be. Like that's one thing that particularly stuck out to me. What? How do you guys interpret that in particular? Oh, how how it's not a song about it's not explicitly a song about blackness. Um, yeah, that or the yeah. or the or the civil rights movements at its time. It's just like it's it's more if anything, it's it is more about Vietnam, I think, than anything else. But it is still it's, like, it's, a pretty general thing. It is cool and important to remember that you know black people care about. And I guess I don't intend to speak speak for any of them. <laughs> Obviously, they uh, we've had you know, and, and so on and so forth. As problematic as it is for me to say anything, I would suggest that as all people, they have a variety of interests. And so, but and so it's interesting that um, it's interesting and it's it's somewhat unexpected. I, I think I guess what I would say is that like it speaks somewhat to. To, to sort of revise what I'm saying, to try to dig myself out of this hole, it speaks somewhat to artistic and cultural segregation that the assumption when an African-American sings a protest song is that it is going to explicitly be about racism against black people. 
Right. And it's like they have their thing. And we that's when when they sing that song, that's what we listen to. And Marvin Gaye is showing uh, greater complexity and sophistication than perhaps audiences are generally ready to accept. I would I would posit that I think a lot of people who know and like the song wouldn't really be able to identify what it's about uh, without really sitting down with the lyrics. And I would attribute that not so much to the song being unclear as to their base assumptions of what they would expect Marvin Gaye would care about. Right. Which is like you would not expect Marvin Gaye to make a song that's like really sympathetic towards veterans. Right. Why? Because he's an R&B singer and you would expect him to be associated because the first thing you think about is his race. You would expect that the salient problems that are like anchored on that cleavage of his race and only his race would be the things that you would expect him to speak about in the public square because that's the space that's reserved for him. Right. I, I, maybe that's a better way of articulating it, that this is kind of like I think the song is stepping outside of a variety of boundaries. And in that sense, it, it it's cool and feels protesty in other ways. Like, I mean, to to I can I can I can pause and let you all comment on what I just said or I'll, I can jump to the next piece. I don't know. What do you think? Well, what we're, they're talking about, Pete, uh, is an interesting contrast to a very on-the-nose protest song against the Vietnam War. Like, you cannot find a more on-the-nose song than Edwin Starr's War. Huh. What is it good for? Is it, was it good for anything? Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, yes, that's absolutely, there you go. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, that you know, just just to you know, cherry pick some of the right war. You know, it means destruction of innocent lives. Um, you know, the sons go to fight; they lose their lives. There's no ambiguity as to what's going on here, right? If you are walking away from the song not knowing what it's about, then um, then 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 that, that a pox be upon you, right? There's no excuse for that. Um, that's not to say that this is a lesser song. Well, okay, no. I think it, it is. It's it's just, it, it's it's mission statement is very very different. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's and like this is like such like a, a, a sludge hammer of a song, whereas like what's going on with the, the, the war is and it's so like um, intense in its rhythm and, and and sonic force. And what's going on is a much more lyrical, softer thing. Um, well, I, I guess all that is to say that it's, it's good to be reminded that all these things can exist um, and there's there's uh, more than enough room for both of them in the discourse. I would I mean, I would say that the thing that really strikes me about what's going on is how sexy it is. Right. That's a good word for which it. Is, yeah. Which is I weird. Mean, it's Marvin freaking gay. Right. The same yeah. guy who brought us um, sexual healing and, and let's yeah. get it on. Ooh. And there and there's a lot of different sorts of traditions of this sort of formal association. Um, I'm reminded not in terms of claiming it as an influence, but as an analogy of Blake's songs of innocence and experience. Right. Uh, where it's like I wrote a bunch of poems that are more or less in the same format. Uh, a bunch of them are about kind of like dreams and beauty and playfulness. And then a bunch of them are about child abuse. Right. And uh, um, and, and they're and they're they, they employ the same tools. Right. To, to address these very different sorts of scopes of human experience. And the notion that here you have a song that's about like very deep, painful dislocations and uh, and cruelties right in in the current uh, state of the world and the state of the communities uh, that are that are, you know, being referred to and, and which would repeat and sing this song. Right. Like like all this pain is happening. And, and Marvin Gaye brings it in the form of of an R&B song that, you know, that is smooth. Right. And sexy. 
um, in its style and that employs those. And then what I would say is, I think if I were to go back and extrapolate from what was said earlier, or what I said earlier, I'd say, okay, what Marvin Gaye is saying is that like, you know, who's going to like this song, people who like sexy songs and it's going to reach them on some level. Uh, and I think that's a pretty ambitious and compelling mission statement for it. Right. It's like, I made a protest song that appeals to everybody who likes sex that's a lot of people. <laughs> like uh, that's that's a lot of that's a very popular topic, right? But more specifically, everybody who connects with my kind of this kind of music that I've that I'm known for and that I've been uh, part of, kind of uh, the vanguard of, um, it opens it up to a different sort of resonance. Um, whereas the Edwin Starr, the song itself is is both martial and uh, and uh, kind of African influenced. Um, in terms of like, and, and when I say that, I mean in this sort of like song forms and call and response, and it sort of has it sort of as a march, but it's also kind of like um, has a chorus to it and stuff. So it's so it's sort of building on the sorts of uh, social the sorts of social relationships that you would expect to be involved in a song about a bunch of people angrily refusing to fight in a war. Uh, which would be soldiers, I guess, because there would be the ones who would be asked to fight in the war. Uh, and in his case, of course, you know, his community, uh, which is also being asked to shoulder a disproportionate burden and using the sort of tools of the music forms that are <clears throat> known, he's able to express that. But with Marvin Gaye, you use this sort of surprising musical form to do it. And I think it's cool and powerful, although I do say I don't think I don't think a lot of people now would be able to identify specifically what it's about. But I guess I should also be fair and think like, well, the song was like freaking 30 years ago, right? Like, you know, things things fade and and uh, and it's, it's kind of silly to protest the Vietnam War now um, because, you know, there's other things that are because what's going on, right, is, is a because present tense expression. On. Right. Uh, yeah. And I guess you could say that the song does seem to speak uh, to a wider sense of history and a sense of our own culture. I mean, I think people feel it's relevant now. Um, I would say, I think if you were to hear people singing it, you know, you would connect with them. Sure. Yeah. Picket um, lines, yeah. picket signs. Don't punish me with brutality. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Exactly. It doesn't get more, more currently relevant than that. Uh, just to loop back on something you said earlier, Pete, uh, before that gets, uh, before it gets, the point gets lost. Um, it, it, <laughs> saying that like, it's, this is designed to appeal to people who like sexy music. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it is a novel and surprising way to, 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 to put, uh, the, what is, uh, you know, the uh, to say that this it was very popular music at the time, right? Um, it, was it popular because of its subject matter or uh, in spite of it? Maybe it's an interesting question, but like it is interesting to note that um, the label Motown, right, which of course, you know, was uh, just like kind of the uh, it was it was like the K pop machine back in the day before there was a k-pop machine <laughs> yes. right just for those like, of you unfamiliar with motown it's imagine bts but there's like 30 different groups exactly right? <laughs> yeah um and, and they were not uh happy about this this record right it was a concept album it was like very political and not to say that motown singers had not been touching political topics at all up until this point but um they wanted marvin gay to do more of the nice love songs like yeah you know mountain high enough and they were putting very happy to him to keep churning out those things um but he took this huge artistic risk to put this out here um and uh was rewarded commercially for it as well as um being able to accomplish uh the sort of the political thing that he was trying to do with it as well and it's, worth, it's worth mentioning that like part of the idea that this was a popular song that a lot of people liked I think intersects with that notion that we discussed that like, 
I think there's a there's a comfortable narrative where protests are always the little they're always David fighting Goliath. Sometimes the protest is Goliath. And it's just, you know, like it's like it, it's it's the greater mass of people. Right. And so the idea that a protest song would be a number one hit. Right. Or whatever. I don't know if this was a number one hit. Um, it was. Yeah, it hit the, it was yeah. yeah. The single yeah. and the album, both the number ones. I wouldn't say that it necessarily speaks to the inauthenticity of the protest, uh, but, you know, um, perhaps to uh, maybe that it isn't a subaltern viewpoint to to look at what was going on at the time and express uh, doubts, confusion and a desire for change. So, the, I mean, I, in in this connection, I guess, like, I think that I, I brought up for what it's worth before. Um you know, I, a couple things about it. One is that, like, just the the call is just everybody look what's going down, right? It's not <laughs> that's not a coherent program of social change, but I suppose it is a prerequisite <laughs> for for social change. Um, the lyrics also do have that that sort of timeless quality, like uh, battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right when everybody's wrong. Um, young people speak in their minds, getting so much resistance from behind like that, that, uh, these things, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of anchor it in specificity, uh, in a particular way. Um, but, uh, I, I just like, Oh, you know, you may think that that song is about just sort of speaking of how things fade. You may think that that, that song is a Vietnam war, uh, protest song because of when it was, um, uh, w- when it was recorded and released, but uh, it's not. It's about uh, a the the kind of the protesting question is uh, the Sunset Strip curfew riots in 1966, which is when a bunch of people wanted to party on the Sunset Strip, and they were uh, they were told that they had to disperse. That there was a what curfew. song is this that you're talking about? For right what now? it's worth, there's something oh, okay. happening here. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, which is also asks what is going on. It asks the same question, but in a different context. Exactly right. Yes. Uh, what what is what is going on with these uh, with these uh, police? These riot police uh, talking about what um, you know, dis- trying to disperse crowds. Uh, in in uh you know when when these kids you know these ucla students or whatever just want to just want to get loaded and listen to rock and roll listen to buffalo springfield and at the whiskey a go-go on the sunset strip right uh why why should they have to uh why should they have to disperse so like uh, you know that that uh context not as well remembered really as the kind of the 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 greater uh and more serious protests happening at the same uh happening at the same time having having to do with the war i suppose um but yeah that you know similar uh similar song um pete why don't you throw a song on the pile uh for the you know for us to to consider i mean gosh there were so there was there were so many that we suggested uh man i mean i guess we could talk about I already I already brought up D. Snyder. I feel like if we don't talk about D. Snyder, I'm going to feel disappointed. Um, uh, so I guess sure we can. Um, well, maybe that's too big of a jump. Let's go to American Idiot. Let's talk about American Idiot. Uh, we talked about wanting to talk about American Idiot, and I think we've alluded to it somewhat in our discussion. Um, American Idiot is, of course, uh, you can tell that it's part of. 
the kind of subaltern revolutionary counterculture because it was made into a Broadway musical. So uh, that's how you can tell that something's really on the edge. Um, but no, it's it's a Green Day song, right? And an album that is highly critical in particular of the regime, as it were, of George W. Bush and his uh, preemptive and proactive warmongering and uh, particularly his associations, his sort of cultural associations that made the sort of complex of his support, um, which kind of furthered what the song refers to as the redneck agenda, right? Um, which which felt like sort of salient things at the time. I don't know if they feel that way as much now. Perhaps they do, perhaps they don't. Um, but uh, but yeah, but it's and it's it's a it's a you know pop emo influenced sort of pre post pre emo pop punk song right um about uh that really kind of identifies and enumerates right that 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 i think is a different kind of style that matches what we're talking about where it's sort of like uh the litany right the list of things that are wrong or bad um that should be called out and and that is a uh that's another really age-old poetical tradition along the lines of rhyming things so that people remember them, right? Is like making a list that is memorable that people memorize and recite, right? Um, so, like, what are the uh, American Idiot lyrics? It's like... Um, Don't want to be an American idiot. Don't want a nation under the under new, new mania. mania. The sound of hysteria, subliminal... Everything isn't meant to be okay. Television dreams of tomorrow. We're not the ones who were meant to follow. Uh, and then it drops in a, a, a slur against uh, uh, the LGBT community in a, in a sort of demonstrative way, not not supporting it, but of course, uh, you know, kind of calling out and pointing out the people who are calling it that. So, so again, it's like maybe I'm thinking of the of the musical and the and the sort of body of work uh idiots yeah it's funny because when i think about the song i think of it as naming a bunch of specific things but then when i look at the song it's kind of vague but then i think oh yeah all of each of these individual things feels like it referenced something specific from the time right like uh idiot america is talking about kind of rejection of expertise and and george w bush being kind of proud to be stupid um let me rephrase that you know uh, you know, congratulations to all of you who are the A students, and for those of you who are the C students, you too can become president of the United States, right? As he said at the commencement or the class mm-hmm. day address. Oh, and and the class. and right immediately after that, I said, and to the dropouts, referring to Dick Cheney, you can be vice president. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this sort of pride in not being um, smart at solving problems or doing your job well. Um, which, again, is not the only reason somebody might be a dropout or a C student, but in this case, uh, perhaps might have some credence um, and, and being proud of it in particular. Right. Like uh, not of having credence. To did, I, did I hear credence? Some folks <laughs> born ready to raise the flag. Licensing is so cheap. It's so cheap to license. Put it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is this a Robin Williams movie? Oh, no, never mind. OK, sorry. <laughs> I just, I, for some reason, I just had a vision of a movie that never existed, which was like a Gremlins movie where that song plays. Okay. Right? <laughs> where 
it's just like gizmo is just like in vietnam right like it's, it's uh some folks have been made to wave the flag and it's like gizmo on a boat going up the mekong river like, <laughs> going up the mekong river i told you don't get them wet don't get them wet what are you talking about they'll never get back by midnight and the reason i say that is of course because what we're joking about is that because of contract disputes involving John Fogarty, right? And the rights to the songs of Koreans Clearwater Revival, their catalog has historically been very inexpensive to license for television and movies. And so any freaking movie you see that involves the Vietnam War in any way is going to feature songs by Koreans Clearwater Revival because they're super cheap. Um, and so now I'm envisioning, well, what would be this? What would be the crassest, most silly cash in that you could do? Uh, you know, the Muppets take uh, Ho Chi Minh City, right? Like, no, it's not. <laughs> but and again, this sort of is, you know, with animal with animal with animal playing drums and, and yes. you know, Dr. Teeth and the and the band play. You know, Some folks are bored. Made to raise the flag. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Piggy, Miss, Miss Piggy singing really, the chorus. It ain't moi. It ain't moi. Sorry, it's I'll really stop. telling that we tried to turn the conversation away from Vietnam and towards you know the, a more contemporary conflict, the Iraq War, which you know arguably is, is still continuing to this day. Um, and yet we still inevitably went go back to the Vietnam <laughs> material, right? <laughs> Frick, freaking, I tried to talk about Billy Joe and ended up talking about Mogwai and Gizmo. So yeah, sorry. So so the point here is that right. It is a political album musical thing. And Mark, you're, I think, a bit more familiar with it than I am. But it's notable because, of course, it's embracing a musical style that is not generally associated with serious intellectual interrogation and protest, even among punk, right? Like punk rock has a proud political history. The pop punk practiced by Green Day historically is like not especially political, uh, not especially among the punk subgenres. So at least for me, watching Green Day mature into making this piece was like surprising and felt like a departure because I don't remember any of it in Dookie. Although I guess there is a sort of broad sense of cultural criticism in the whole sort of like look at all of the detritus, right? Look at all of sort of the sort of meaningless, you know, uh, uh, delay and and obfuscation and kind of like uh, you know clutter. And kind of symbolic clutter that the punk is kind of cutting through in, in the way we live and the way we make music and the way that we experience pleasure um, and, and the sort of the idea of madness as being characteristic of uh, social forces and economic forces uh, rather than just distinctly a product of, you know, your experience at the, at the time. Uh, so I'm not that's to say that Green Day was never political, but this this feels like a an a overt attempt to recreate the form of protest music in a subgenre uh, where it is not typically found. Yeah, um, th- that is all accurate, and I think yeah. a better, more interesting point of comparison to uh, uh, rather than the album Dookie, uh, their huge uh, debut album is uh, the one that, if not immediately after that, shortly after that, Nimrod, and in particular the single from that, Good Riddance, right? right. Um, which is not really the uh, treacly sentimental acoustic ballad that uh, people kind of think it is. There's something a little bit uh, uh, darker going on there. But um, if you had a, just a very passing uh, familiarity with Green Day from you know the big hits from Dookie and then 
Good riddance. I hope you had the time of your life. Oh yeah, that's great. Uh, graduation class in '98 rules. Yeah. Um, and then and then get hit with a sledgehammer, twin sledgehammers of the Iraq War, and then this incendiary. Um, is it incendiary though? It's not that incendiary. Um, yeah. This this protest anthem. Sure. Yeah. That's a that's a pretty wh- big whiplash, and and credit goes to Green Day for really just kind of leaning in into that. And the music is affecting and uh, effective. Um, but to the point of what we were saying earlier, how the conversation went back to Vietnam, it did not leave quite the same sort of cultural legacy um, as uh, as a lot of the songs that we were talking about before. I don't think that's necessarily an indictment of uh, of this music in particular. Um, uh, it, it, it probably speaks more to just like when we we're talking about uh, music from the 2000s, right? We talk a, a huge uh uh, thing un- undergirding that was the uh, fracturing of the music industry, uh, Napster, music piracy, uh, and then the internet. Um, basically, saying like, well, there's you know, there's not kind of like this one single singular vein of pop music that everybody dials into. Everything is, is starting to splintering into a, a million different pieces here. Um, and then where there's just like uh, the more complex legacy of uh, the or the different legacy of the Iraq War vis-a-vis the Vietnam War as right. well we're still litigating it to, to, to this day it's like it's not in the history books in the same way that vietnam is right well yeah i mean eh, much much to much to our own detriment i it it is kind of staggering how little i would say um when i say we i would refer to in this case not like society but like me and other people i tend to associate with and talk about how little we would be able to articulate an understanding of of the iraq war the afghanistan war the u.s participation in the civil war in syria and not just what it was for and and sort of how it transpired but really what it has done to us um i mean i I kind of one of the reasons i was intrigued by this topic is that the breakdown in popular music has you know maybe robbed is the wrong word but has kind of sapped somewhat the ability has like has kind of weakened a particular channel that I might have turned to for a clear explanation of all of this in succinct rhyming terms that would be easy to remember and repeat, right? Um, but uh, but it's too late for that, right? And at this point, um, we are on that old town road on our horse, and there's no turning around. Uh, but uh, but the sense that there was like never, a, I mean, as far I can't remember a great song that explained the kind of psychic damage done to a generation that had to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, oh, you don't remember voices that care from the early nineties. The, you know, <laughs> let me, let me, uh, I, I had to learn this for a, like a very sentimental support, the troops assembly in, uh, in elementary school, you know, as a, as a right. child. So it, because I learned it because I, you know, have sort of a steel trap memory for, for lyrics, for mnemonic rhyming things, uh, it'll, it will never leave me. And so, uh, I, you know, my, my curse is your gift here because I can tell you uh lonely fear lights up the sky can't help but wonder why you're so far away there you had to take a stand in someone else's land life can be so strange i wish we never had to choose to either win or lose that we could find a way but i won't turn my back again chilling your honor i'll defend so hurry home till then. 
stand tall, stand proud, voices that care are crying out loud. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, interesting, almost a, uh, like a, a sort of oblique, but very easy to parse out reference to Vietnam there, right? In terms of like, with, I, w- I won't turn my back again, right? Like, I won't, uh, I won't sort of, this, this was in the sort of yellow ribbon time, you know, like uh, with a lot of, uh, where a lot of justified criticism of the war was uh, subsumed in um, support the troops talk, uh, which, you know, was completely lost on me as a 10 year old or whatever. But the, the uh, yeah, but I, I won't turn my back again, you know, um, that I mean, how, how's that Pete for sophisticated analysis to help you? Uh, to help you understand um, the the conflicts in the Middle East. I mean, I will listen to analysis of any song that includes Luther Vandross, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Celine Dion all on the same track. So it's the uh... sweet sax solo from Kenny G. <laughs> but I mean, that's sort of the opposite of a protest song, right? That's like a song about alleviating anxiety and being sort of like that's a, that's a sort of like consoling and and helping. Right. Like uh, like uh, like a concurrence song, like we agree with the thing that you're doing as opposed to like we disagree with the thing that you're doing. Um, I, I guess I guess agreeing with something doesn't count as protesting it. Right. Um, well, the, had some level the, what it what it does it. is it is it is kind of an exercise in question begging. Right. Like because it it sort of co-opts. Uh, it it you know co-ops a, a concern for the the human cost of of war right what is it good for um god y'all <laughs> good Don't god i'm after midnight <laughs> <laughs> good god good god y'all um uh, right with uh you know, with a kind of normative claim about how how you have to how your how your concern for the the effects of of war fighting on the people who have to fight the war um, should uh, you know really silence all criticism um, silence all criticism of the policies that that led to the war a little bit. So it's you know I I sort of think of this as as in the like the proud tradition of uh, of we are the world that like. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, that uses sort of sentimentality to address an issue without really, uh, without really addressing the issue, without really, you know, providing uh, any insight into the underlying forces that 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 make it so. Without asking, what's going on? You know, right? <laughs> without knowing in itself what's going on. Yeah, it's a, it's a counter-protest song, is it not? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, inter- I mean, interesting. It's a, it's a song about the the you know the moral wrong of protest. <laughs> okay, so in my house, I want to transition here, and I want to say that that as a new father of uh, of a six week old infant, there is a lot of screaming. And hostility and protest <laughs> that happens in my house. And, and I think that this screaming and hostility and protest speaks to another kind of protest song that we should address before uh, before uh, finishing uh, tonight, which is songs that are made in protest of your parents doing things to help you. Right. Right. <laughs> For your benefit, like songs of protest against the sacrifices and hard work that your parents do to try to provide a home for you and safety, which you are, of course, hugely ungrateful for. 
because you do not understand why you are trapped in the place where you are uh, and and uh, don't understand the imperfections and shortcomings uh, that that come with um, the la- total lack of sleep and exhaustion that comes from trying to raise a human being. Uh, so, D. Snyder. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is when uh, when yeah when baby was in Peter's land, <laughs> let my baby go. <laughs> I don't want to go to sleep. I'm so tired. <laughs> Wah, feed me. I'm going to vomit. <laughs> so D Snyder. Uh, <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so this is sort of, I, I feel like we should, we should really coin this because I, I really, you really turned a light on for me, Matt, when you first expressed this. And, and I wish we should have a term for it, like the ghost ship moment, uh, which is basically, is basically this sort of nexus point, the balancing point uh, where ambiguous criticism of authority uh, teeters between being uh, metaphorically or actually about either, uh, you know, sort of oppression vis-a-vis like governments and non-state actors on a large scale in the world affecting like human beings, like kind of living uh, and trying to make a living in their kind of material and social condition or versus, or uh, teenagers <laughs> who who have parents who, because the parents uh, got to know them when they were small children, are are incapable of uh, uh, of giving them the leeway and acknowledgement and respect that, that they deserve as autonomous adults. Uh, and thus, it must be taken by force by a plucky band of teenagers who need to blow up the Capitol and steal it from from their, the tyrannical president. Oh, okay, John Brown there. Okay. <laughs> so, D. Snyder. Uh, so, so, what I'm saying... What I'm suggesting is that, okay, so guys, remember when the biggest problem in the whole world was that parents didn't let people turn their music players up loud? Oh, like, how, I never yeah, understood so much. that. Can I say this I never a major understood concern. That? Yeah. <laughs> so I never understood Human why. rights violation, Pete. So here's the thing about heavy metal and rock music and glam rock music and music where people are screaming. You don't have to play it loud. It gets the point across, right? Like (laughs) if I'm listening to Twisted Sister at a moderate volume, I can still get hyped about it because it is not just the volume of Twisted Sister that gets me hyped, but the sort of form and function, right, of of like the the, the timbre and the rhythm and the expression. The the twistedness of Sister. (laughs) Exactly. But but lo, right, here we have a song in We're Not Going to Take It, which is about – this this situation uh ostensibly where uh where where for some reason when you share a house with somebody you're supposed to not drown out the environment with the sounds of your own recreation <laughs> like um, like how dare you right like how dare you put dampers on them look this is about the rock and roll and you don't understand um, what, what is that? What are you going to do with your life? I guess that's a bit of a di- that's that's a bit unfair. I, I'm being a little bit unfair to D. Snyder, uh, who, by the way, I think always comes across in interviews, right, as like much smarter than le- is let on him and uh, Alice Cooper. Right. Uh, or maybe I'm mis- confusing him with Alice Cooper. I don't even know. Uh, don't hold me on that. You but, think but just, you you only think Alice Cooper is smart because of the bit he did in Wayne's World about the <laughs> only <laughs> is that not sufficient? Seventy like percent of my exposure, to Alex Cooper. <laughs> so okay, okay, okay. So for those of you who are not alive in the 1980s, for some reason there was a lot of music that seemed to sort of be about the okay. So okay, 
All right. I feel like I have to articulate something here, guys, and stop me or correct me if I get this wrong. And this is going to feel a little bit like old man yelling at cloud. I get the sense from looking in the medias that are social that people don't think of the baby boomer generation as being a generation that, like, enacted a lot of social change. Right. For a positive purpose. Right. Uh, They think of them and that's because they know them as, you know, 60 and 70 year olds, which is kind of when people tend to kind of uh, become what they become and watch Wheel of Fortune. Right. Um, But I think nothing wrong with Wheel of Fortune. Love Wheel of Fortune. Actually, no, that's not true. Love Jeopardy. Love Vanna White. Pat Sajak. Eh. Anyway, game, not great design. Okay, that not notwithstanding, like the idea, right, of of white children listening to rock and roll music was like highly controversial in the 50s right like uh and and to a lesser extent in the 60s because it was black music and the music was supposed to be segregated and defying the segregation was was framed as a moral failure and i, and I would say was cause for a broadway it was cause for a broadway musical defying the segregation was and caused. a variety of movies and stuff like a huge amount of of ink is spilled over this issue right though i, I would say that that like um uh, that it's like not a trivial problem, right? Like the idea that like um, you're trying to, you know, you're you're trying to kind of. Uh, what I would say is that I think that there were a lot of people who really did sincerely believe that there was corruptive influence and and had become so internalized on the racism that was underpinning all this stuff that they that they were oblivious and a lot of the art of the time reflects this obliviousness to the idea that like there's a racial coding to the idea that these kids want to listen to rock and roll and we don't want to let them listen to it right um and it was moreover the farther you go back because back then people weren't as used to being recorded and (laughs) were more frank with what they said um but at any rate once you get to the 80s you're doing the sort of like this weird echo happens Right. Where it's like, you don't want me to listen to rock and roll. And it's like, well, I mean, I, I, I listened to it. This is the sort of back to the future problem. Right. Where like where where uh, where Mar- well, there's many back to the future problems. Martin back to the future. Marty McFly goes back to his parents dance and he plays Johnny B. Good, which is of the time of his parents, not of his time. But he is able to appropriate and bring it back. Because he has in the present appropriated it, right? Like in the present, it's like rock and roll music is the music of his generation, even though in the parents' generation, it's it's segregated and outside of their experience. And he kind of brings it back and collides it with them. And there's this weird kind of like Ouroboros going on. Uh, but that's sort of what the movie is about is various snakes eating their own tails and such. Um but the idea that then Marty McFly plays modern rock music, and that's way too much for everybody. Like, there's this sort of second wave, right, of, of rock music is too much. And rock music is is morally decrepit, right? And rock music is like a disruptive influence. And so you have all of this kind of protest art. Uh, I mean, Footloose comes to mind as related, right? Like, as in, like, this dance music and rock music is bad for you and you shouldn't be doing it. And it's like, no, you can't set rules for me. Uh, and I think we wanted to talk about we're not going to take it. And, and I'm, I'm Doug and your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. It makes the leap to parody so quickly because it's already so camp that it's hard to tell like what's what's being said, <laughs> right? Like because I I, lo- I still laugh when I say it's about the music because I don't know what that means. It doesn't <laughs> clarify anything. <laughs> like I don't I don't understand. But there is a song called "We're Not Gonna Take It," which is presumably about 
people who aren't going to take it, which is also played during the snack breaks at hockey games. And and it's not clear what it is they're not going to take because currently they are taking, you know, some nachos or a Diet Coke or, you know, whatever they sell at your hockey arena, which right about now in this moment in history, they sell nothing. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, this was a different time when you could go to a hockey arena and buy nachos and they would play Twisted Sister. Um, so anyway, I want to kind of enumerate and Mark, I know you were excited about this, too, so I don't want to steal all the thunder here. But I want to kind of try to enumerate a little bit. What are the things that are being protested in we're not going to take we're not going to take it, which is also, I think, uh, a, a song with one of the laziest and most rudimentary guitar ser- guitar uh, solos in the history of, of mainstream popular hits. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, for those of you unfamiliar. Right. We're not going to take we're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. So there's this oscillation, right? We're not going to take it. We ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it. It changes, right? And the no is in there because you want to emphasize, of course, that they're not going to take it. Um, they have the right to anymore. choose. They have the right to choose is the first thing they say, which from a – this is a great example of, of the difficulty of understanding historical art because I don't think he's talking about abortion. Uh, and there ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. We'll fight. Okay, so so okay. So the right to choose here is associated with our own lives, and there's this notion that we possess something that's being taken away from us. Uh, we'll fight the powers that be. You know, I'm not even interested in what Decenter says the song is about. Although, if you looked it up, I want to hear it. But it's like, let's let's consider what he's actually saying. Fight the powers that be. Just don't pick our destiny because you don't know us. You don't belong. Okay. Okay. So, so, okay. So I think what starts out with is this notion that, that you're being robbed of some sort of political good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your life, your, but your, your, your autonomy, your sort of bodily autonomy, um, the powers that be, of course, when we think of fighting the powers that be, we think of the sort of, uh, integration of kind of public and private interest in uh, systematic oppression as well as systemic oppression uh, and public enemy. I don't think D. Snyder is talking about public enemy because I think the song came out first, but I'm not sure. Um, but then it's like, don't pick our destiny because you don't belong. So what it's really about is pluralism, sort of like ideological imperialism, uh, or is it or parents, right? It's the sort of snow, the, the President Snow moment or the President Snow conjecture or I don't even know the snow point, this, the snow inflection um, where we don't. I think I think they're talking about parents telling kids what jobs they should have or what they should do with their lives uh, because presumably the parents have sort of expectations uh, but we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. We previously took it. This makes sense if you're aging. Uh, you might have previously taken guidance from your parents as to what to do with your time because you were incapable of figuring out for yourself or because you would have come up with stupid reasons, stupid things, such as, like, let's go walk in traffic. Don't do that. You're not allowed. The number of things you have to dissuade children from doing to avoid them killing themselves, right? It's like, uh, no, don't put that in your mouth. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't put that in your mouth. Okay, I'm not going to take that anymore. <laughs> right? Like, um, <laughs> 
And then you're so condescending. Your gall is never ending. We don't want nothing, not a thing from you. Your life is trite and jaded, boring and confiscated. If that's your best, your best. So the song goes ad hominem like hard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they run out of interesting things to say, but at, at, but it gets a trite and jaded. But uh, I think you just skip, Pete. You you just hit upon the line that is most key to understanding. How the song has been radically recontextualized since uh, since it came out. Um, you're so condescending. Your gall is never ending. We don't want nothing, not a thing from you. That is why this song, I believe, became um, uh, used by Republican campaigns, nationwide campaigns in 2012 and 2016. Like this was the Trump campaign theme song until D. Snyder says, "Wait a minute, no, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> I am not going to take this <laughs> anymore." You're not allowed to use my intellectual so, property. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know. I remember that. He's like, we have Jews in this band. We have Polish people in this band and we won't tolerate racism. Right. Like that was because uh, I think he's had to do this like multiple times <laughs> to like speak out. Um, I remember that yeah. just because it stuck out. It was on The Daily so it, Show. This song has become this anthem of uh, what white working class rage. Um, uh, people who feel like they've been condescended by the liberal elite as embodied by black man, black president, liberal uh, Barack Obama, right? They're not going to take that anymore. Uh, pluralism. So paternalism, you said, you said, right? Paternalism and, and pluralism, as you just said earlier, Pete. So the idea that, like, if you are not from our group, you shouldn't be the person who is setting rules for how we behave, mm-hmm. which exists in this nebulous space between children saying it to adults as they approach adulthood and then also, like, whoever D. Snyder is. Well, and of course, D. Snyder is in this sort of campy, glam, makeup wearing, iconoplastic uh, rock group where presumably. The name of the band is Twisted Sister. Yes, Twisted Sister. Not, not Twisted Brothers, Twisted yeah. Sister. Has there been any sort of revelation about Twisted Sister over the years? Like, what, was it standing for something that they weren't talking about that nobody understood? Um,. I don't know. I, I just don't know that about them. This is this is worth a deep dive. I mean, you may point. you may remember the classic Disney film now available on Disney Plus for streaming, Flight of the Navigator, which I had on VHS and watched hundreds of times as a child. Where uh, when when he like falls asleep for eight years or like time travels with the the help of the uh, uh, the alien spacecraft, and he you know shows up eight years later in the eighties. Right. Uh, The kid shows up in the 80s, but he's still a little kid from the 70s and uh, sees a lab tech with purple hair, asks her what she's going to go do. She says she's going to a concert, Twisted Sister. Oh, who's she? Actually, it's a he. Actually, it's a them. <laughs> and that's uh, that's all you need to know about Twisted Sister. It's what Disney tells you uh, in the the classic film Flight of the Navigator. Um, yeah, I, sorry, Pete, I, I uh, interrupted your flow about Twisted Sister, no, no, and I'm no. not, and I'm not from around here, so I, I shouldn't be setting rules for your. <laughs> well, I don't want to be so dismissive because I enjoy the song, and I think. And and this also dovetails with something else that you were, Matt, talking about recently that stuck with me, which was this idea that – and again, a lot of this comes down to the difficulty of uh, interpreting art as strictly social or strictly personal. That when you have stories, particularly fantasy or sci-fi stories, where the protagonist of the story has a sort of aristocratic uh, relationship with the world – uh, you know, and and they are special, right? In some way, uh, and that that this sort of is rewarded by the metaphysics 
or this sort of uh, reality that they inhabit. It sort of rewards their specialness. There's a social degree to which this is uncomfortable because, you know, it, it kind of teaches us to build. Uh, the, the claim is that it teaches us to build our notion of our the way that we organize people around the prioritization of a particular ideal of an individual person as being the best, which inevitably leads to like the collapse of, of, you know, mutual understanding and the rise of various sorts of, you know, whether it's aristocratic or fascistic or exploitative or gender, you know, priority. there's all sorts of ways in which saying one kind of person is the best kind of person causes problems. Uh, however, this same storytelling on a subjective level speaks to the irreconcilable subjectivity of existence as a human being, right? In that in your own story, you are the hero. It is, you cannot, it is just simply not, um, uh, short of like extreme, you know, short of psychedelics, right? You're and, and they make bold claims and I don't tend to investigate them. Uh, you're not going to extract yourself Pete, from you're saying the you're, protagonist you're, role in your own story. You're not going to take it. I'm not going to take it. But no, the, the idea that to understand yourself is to understand a story with a main character and a person that you prioritize above above other people by necessity, right? That you can't escape the fact that you have to prioritize yourself because not necessarily materially, strictly, but in that like you have information about yourself that you don't have about anybody else. Mm. And and you face problems with regards to yourself as a being that you don't face with regards to every, anybody else because you don't have control over their agency in the same degree. Well, control. I'm, I'm importing too many terms. I could just leave it at that. Right. And so the idea that like a story has a hero. Uh, you know, is related to our subjective experience as individuals uh, in a in a in a in a social context, uh, but it's also socially related to uh, how people organize things and the idea that perhaps organizing society and the way that mirrors the individual uh, is is not a great idea, right? And and you know, perhaps we've done better than Confucius over the years, uh, better than Aristotle. Uh, perhaps we have not. Right. This idea that like organizing should be primarily an act of aesthetic metaphor. Right. That like, you know, the way to organize people is to pick something else that's organized in a cool way and imitate it. Uh, because that because then you can have the the confirmation bias of, of having imitated and reconciled with something um, as opposed to kind of trying to create uh, outcomes that are desirable and kind of testing what would work and what wouldn't work and such. Uh, but at any rate. What I'm saying is that the protest in we're not going to take it, 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 even though it feels it feels to me stylistically like it is a protest song in a glam metal context, similar to how American Idiot is a protest song in an emo pop or pop punk context. Right. Uh, it, but it is not strictly about the social context of what sort of collective group is not going to take it from what sort of other collective group. It's also about the individual experience of feeling dominated by somebody, right? Who does sure, not, the, the individual experience of not going to take it-ness. Yes. And the question then is, I, I guess, with regards to what Mark is saying and in the, the way that this becomes a conservative anthem is like, okay, I, I mean, I've talked, I mean, I talked with, we all talked with a lot of people, this, this coherence, the idea that there needs to be a coherence between your individual experience of what makes you feel sustained and angry and other things versus the sort of ideal way that you view society in, in, in the sense that it exists and such, uh, that's tricky. You know, that's problematic. I don't know if that's something that we can really go with. Like, is it is it is it necessary or even useful 
to feel in harmony with all other people because we want, you know, our larger organization of people to all feel in harmony with each other. Does feeling in harmony with the people around you in your own life necessarily lead to harmony on a large scale? One could argue that phenomena such as segregation make that impossible, right? Like the idea that your own circle that you experience on a day-to-day basis doesn't encompass all the people that are affects that you affect and are affected by you in your life might in- instead reflect that like your own personal harmony existing as a microcosm of the social harmony has limitations. Um, and and I think that what is happening with we're not going to take it being read as a as a macro protest anthem is just ignoring the limitations of the of the sort of inverse of that. The idea that feeling a need to assert yourself and your boundaries with people who don't who have not, you know, kind of don't have a relationship with you where you've granted the kind of authority to do things to your body and yourself. Right. Um, like bur- and, like uh, burp, like burp you or clean like up your poop you or tr- or or buy you your favorite pizza when you've had a rough day. And now you're angry at me and I don't understand it. You know, like and, and I used to change your poop and now you hate me and I don't understand parenthood. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It's it's been not a lot of sleep. And, I, and then, of course, I haven't experienced any of that stuff uh, other than the poop part just yet. Um, I don't know, Mark, you're a parent. Does any of this resonate with you? <laughs> the sort of fear that your child's going to come home one day and, and, and is going to look at you the way that, that, that the kid looks at the parent in the video for we're not going to take it um, uh, because because it's like, what are you going to do yeah, with your life? I hate, I hate to break it to you, Pete. It'll be here before you know it. Uh, my uh, 18-month-old is uh, showing early signs of uh, of tantrums. Uh, you know that that go from the you know uh, I, I love you daddy and you know and and thank you for this delicious food that you provided me to expletive 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 we're not gonna take it anymore it's just like the, then he turns he just like spins in 360 degrees and turns into D Snyder it's really disturbing you just I'm, I'm asking you Pete <laughs> I like the, to the get point ready of like for this. he spins around in a circle because that's what they do in the video right he spins exactly yes yes circle. yes please yeah. please watch the music video yeah. um. For this, uh, well, really, okay. Going back to what I said earlier, listen to the Funk Brothers play the instrumental version of what's going on because that's just magical artistry. And then watch the music video for "We're Not Gonna Take It" because that's well, it's a different kind of artistry. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that at some point James Jamerson got really drunk and just played the guitar solo from "We're Not Gonna Take It" on, on his face. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but I, I would also say that, like, I think one lesson to take away from our discussion of Twisted Sister, perhaps, or suggestion, is that being involved in a group that has a sort of collectivist ideal doesn't mean that you should have no boundaries with other people in your personal life, either in the context of that organization or outside of it, right? Uh, in much the same way that like a desire for greater boundaries in your personal life doesn't necessarily translate into endorsing like boundary as an absolute concept as, as the sort of dictate for all things. Uh, it's, you know, these are, these are sort of different realms and they sometimes require different solutions, Uh, but it is clear that they are angry about something. Uh, <laughs> well, that's why that's that's why they scream and they they won't go to sleep, Pete. It's it's just it's that you're you're in the process, Pete, of becoming Rome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we we took you from. Why are you crying? I fed you the bottle. I did everything. 
don't understand. <laughs> we took you from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, and the ridiculous turned out to be surprisingly sublime. Maybe uh, not so surprisingly, because this is the Overthinking Podcast, and we thank you for listening to it. Thanks also to Pete and Mark uh, for podcasting with us uh, on this journey through uh, going back to going back to pop culture. Uh, so, uh, hey, we'll be back next week. We'll see you then. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where you can subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve.